Thanks for joining us this morning. I want to remind everybody that this weekend is Desert Dog Canine Trials, and I'll be up there. It's going to be at Westworld or, yeah, Westworld up in Scottsdale. And we want to thank Ray Allen Manufacturing for donating a gift card to our gift basket, as well as Diamondback Shooting Sports. And I also want to announce that the 6th Annual Southern Arizona Opioid Prevention Symposium is October 25th at Casino del Sol. You can register at PimaCPC.org. Okay, our guest today is Bill Mormon, and he is the appeals attorney for Derek Shaven. And I want to welcome you to the show, sir. Thank you, Sherry. Okay, I, <laughs> I think there's nobody on this earth that doesn't know this case. So I don't know how That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they're gonna find a, a jury pool, but let's let's go over some of these bullet points because I really feel in my heart of hearts that the mainstream media took this and misrepresented it to everybody around the world. So l- let's start yeah. from the beginning. Okay. So you weren't the attorney who was in the the first trial, right? No, that's correct. I was not the trial attorney for Derek. Uh, Derek was represented by Eric Nelson in Minneapolis. Eric is a um, uh, criminal defense lawyer here in the Twin Cities, has a very good reputation. He's a really good lawyer. Uh, He's part of a uh, consortium of lawyers in the Twin Cities who are hired through a, not through the police union, but through a uh, organization that was set up by the police to provide representation to police officers when they're charged with crimes or with civil civil matters. We had the um, police defense coalition on right after all this happened, and they said that they were going to represent uh, Derek, did they? I, if If that's the same organization, they did. So they okay. provided representation to um, to Derek in the criminal trial and also in the civil case that was filed by Floyd, Floyd's estate against uh, Derek and the other officers involved, as well as the city of Minneapolis. And now there have been uh, two additional federal lawsuits that have been filed against uh, Derek and the city of Minneapolis um, by individuals who were uh, arrested by Derek and other officers, and uh, in conjunction with those arrests, the uh, uh, suspects were put into the hobble position. In other words, they were laid on the ground and put on their stomach and, and uh, restrained until they were willing to be arrested. Do you think it was fair that the media turned this into um, a black and white issue, a discrimination issue? Because that, when everything came down, that's not how I saw it and not how a lot of other people saw it, but they seemed to jump on that bandwagon and, and force that into the mainstream news. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought that was, that was very unfair of the, of the media to portray it that way. And the, but, you know, the whole issue got out of control from the beginning. Uh, you know, you had this video, uh, and there were multiple videos taken of the event. And unfortunately, um, the video was portrayed that Derek had his knee on uh, George Floyd's neck. And this is one of the arguments I'll be making on the appeal of why this poisoned the jury pool uh because it left the jury, it left people in the Twin Cities with the impression that George Floyd died because he was choked, because his um, trachea was was choked off because of the pressure on his neck, and that didn't happen. Derek Chauvin's knee was not on George Floyd's neck; it was on his back. Yeah, even in the training manual, it appears that it's on the knee, but it is on the back. Yeah, yeah, it appears that it's on the neck. What you're referring to is uh, one of the, one of the controversial things that happened in the trial. Is um, let me actually let me back up for a second. What 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 your listeners need to understand about um, 
a criminal trial of a police officer who's um, charged with um, either assault or, or manslaughter or murder of, of an individual that they've been trying to arrest is the trial is not about what happened. The trial will be about two pieces of expert testimony. The first one is whether the officer used a reasonable degree of force in arresting the suspect, and, and you have to have expert testimony on that. And then the second issue is whether the, if the officer used an unreasonable degree of force, whether that unreasonable degree of force was a substantial contributing cause to the death or the assault of the suspect. So um, in, in this case, um, Every, you know, there's videos of what happened here. This isn't the O.J. Simpson case. We know what happened. There's videos of it. But the video tells us nothing with regard to the reasonable use of force or why George Floyd died. Um, that you need expert testimony on. At trial, um, Derek's defense counsel tried to get admitted into evidence the Minneapolis police training manual uh, dealing with uh, how officers are to deal with suspects who are exhibiting what's known as excited delirium. And that's generally when a suspect is, is high on drugs and is kind of out of control, as Mr. Floyd was here. And one of the techniques is, that's used is to lay the suspect on the ground, on their stomach, with one officer putting a knee on the suspect's back and the other officer or officers restraining the suspect's legs until the suspect calms down sufficiently to be cuffed and to put into a squad car. The Minneapolis Police Training Manual has a photograph in it of a demonstration of this technique, and that photograph looks virtually identical to what Derek Chauvin and the other officers were doing with George Floyd. It has one officer with a knee on a suspect's back and the other two officers holding the legs. And the judge would not admit that into evidence. What was the point of that? I, it's significant that this is how they were trained. Why would the judge say, hey, you can't use that? Yeah, so, so to go back to what I was saying earlier, the, the issue is, is one of expert testimony. So what you're trying to show if you're the police officer is that this is a reasonable use of force. And I can't think of a more significant piece of evidence that Derek Chauvin would have than that the Minneapolis police training manual had a photograph in it showing that it was reasonable for officers and arresting suspects who are uh, exhibiting excited delirium to use this technique, which is called the hobble technique, in restraining the suspect. What the judge uh, concluded is that he would not allow the evidence in because there was no evidence that Derek uh, Chauvin had seen this particular part of the training manual in Derek Chauvin's training. <laughs> so there was a lot. Yeah, let, let, me, let me continue on this because this is absurd. It's ridiculous. So there was uh, efforts to locate uh, Derek Chauvin's um, registration to do training with the Minneapolis Police Department, and they couldn't find any uh, written evidence that Derek had seen this particular training. Um, and of course, Derek didn't testify in the case because he relied on his Fifth Amendment right not to testify, so he couldn't testify that he's, he saw the training. My argument at the appellate court is I don't care whether he saw the training. So hopefully I can explain this well enough to your to your listeners. The issue of an officer using a reasonable degree of a reasonable amount of force is an objective standard. It doesn't matter what's going through the officer's head or what the officer has, what knowledge the officer has in their mind. The issue is whether or not that that use of force that was exhibited was reasonable doesn't matter whether the officer got training on it. And what I'm going to argue to the appellate court is that basically this judge would conclude is that if you had an officer that for whatever reason became a police officer and had no training, but arrested a suspect using a reasonable degree of force and everybody admitted it, 
that the officer couldn't use the defense of reasonable use of force because he'd never been trained in it. That That's absurd. The issue is whether there was a reasonable degree of force used, not whether the officer's trained on it or not. And in any event, it's kind of obvious that Derek Chauvin was obviously trained in this technique that's used by police officers, quite frankly, all over the world. So uh, we'll see what happens at the appellate level, but I, um, I have not seen any arguments from the state oppose, opposing the argument I just made. That, that it doesn't matter whether Derek saw this training or not. This photograph absolutely should have been allowed in evidence. Oh, absolutely. And all four of them should have been allowed to have that photograph in there. The, the thing that I learned from doing research and your bullet points, actually, I didn't realize he had three times the legal limit of lethal drugs in his system i knew he swallowed a fistful of drugs trying to get rid of the evidence and i've said that on the show many times when we've brought up this case but i didn't realize just how much can you explain to the listeners that portion of of what happened yes so um when um when the uh two younger police officers first approached uh, George Floyd's vehicle, you can see uh, from their webcam video that George Floyd appeared to be trying to put something in his mouth at the time that they came to the window of the vehicle. Um, the speculation was is that he was putting drugs into his mouth. Um, don't really know what, the, well, actually, we do know what the drugs are now, not only based on uh, the drugs that were in George Floyd's system when, on his autopsy. But after the arrest, this is another problem with this case. <clears throat> the state, when they prosecute anyone, is supposed to provide all evidence that the state has in its possession, including evidence that would exonerate the defendant. The vehicle um, that the police squad car that George Floyd, uh, uh, that they attempted to put George Floyd into, uh, and George Floyd was resisting, um, that vehicle was inspected by the police and the um, State Bureau of Criminal Apprehension after this incident happened, and they did a report. And then uh, three, four months later, Eric Nelson, uh, Derek Chauvin's attorney, learned that there were uh, there were photographs in the car which showed uh, that there might be half-eaten pills on the seat of the vehicle. Eric immediately notified the state of this and, and demanded the right to inspect the vehicle. Um, the state allowed Eric to do that because they couldn't say no. And sure enough, this was like three or four months after the incident. Sure enough, when they went to inspect the vehicle, there was a half-eaten pill in the vehicle. And again, this vehicle hadn't been used. It had been locked up and stored away after the George Floyd incident. That pill was then tested, and it was determined to be a fentanyl tablet. So... The speculation is that George Floyd was attempting to, as you indicated, get rid of the evidence that he had in his possession, fentanyl pills, by eating a lot of them. Fentanyl is a very, very dangerous drug. And people say this about all drugs, but fentanyl is really dangerous. Uh, Fentanyl was developed as an anesthetic it's used in the hospitals across the country to anesthetize patients before surgery. And the problem with fentanyl is that one of the things that can happen if you take even a small overdose is fentanyl acts in, in the part of your brain that controls the, your breathing, and it basically shuts that part of your brain down. So you basically suffocate. You basically slowly go to sleep and your lungs stop breathing. In George Floyd's autopsy, there uh, the autopsy showed he had 11, and I think the measurement is nanograms, but there might be some other. I'm not sure about that right now as I was preparing this morning. But 
in any event, he had 11 uh, nanograms in his system. I think it was nanograms. The, um, the lethal amount is three. So George Floyd had a way, way too much fentanyl in his system as he was being arrested. And, and he took that before before um, Derek arrived, didn't he? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So uh, Derek and the other officer did not arrive until maybe five, six, seven minutes after the two initial officers were trying to arrest George Floyd because they were having difficulty arresting him. So... Um, you know, basically, it looks like what happened and what Eric Nelson argued at trial on Derek's behalf is that uh, George Floyd took this um, uh, fentanyl to try to hide the evidence. And then um, as he was uh, came out of the vehicle he was in and the officers were trying to arrest him, he started resisting arrest. Um that's when uh, Derek Chauvin and the other officer were notified to come and assist to try to get uh, Floyd into the into the squad car so that they could take him and book him at the local police precinct. Yeah, he was at least twice the size of anybody there. He he's a was a big guy. He was a very big guy. Um, I uh, again, don't quote me on this, but I think he was six four two forty. He was a very, very big man. Um, and Derek Chauvin is not a big man at all. Derek Chauvin's 145 pounds. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a man of a very small stature. When I it was at the closing argument, I didn't have the, the pleasure of watching the trial like a lot of people did. But I did see a little bit of the closing arguments uh, by the defense attorney. And that's when they showed video of things leading up to it and a little bit of after the fact why didn't they show that on the news do you know why they suppressed all that because that was pretty important well it it appeared uh in the local media that they were just driving a narrative that yeah. uh the minneapolis <laughs> were out of control and they were trying to you know kill suspects are trying to arrest it was it was really ridiculous i will tell you when this incident first happened and i saw the initial video of it um i was like wow that's really bad you know he's <laughs> that's what everybody said back and he's trying to choke him right I, I you know i you just you watch it on tv and that's what the tv's telling you and everybody's upset and stuff but that's not what actually happened um in fact there's you know, your listeners should understand when I say that his knee was not in his neck, the the prosecution at trial did not argue that Derek Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck in a way that cut off George Floyd's trachea so George Floyd couldn't breathe. The prosecution's theory at trial was that um by Derek Chauvin having his knee on George Floyd's back and placing his weight on his back, that that caused George Floyd to suffer from what's known as positional asphyxia. In other words, that the combination of the asphalt on the front of the chest when he's lying stomach down, coupled with uh, Derek Chauvin's weight on his back, restricted, so restricted George Floyd's ability to breathe that he was unable to breathe because of that weight. <clears throat> now, I'll tell you, after we got hired in this case, I I was interested in, you know, does this theory make sense? It, it First of all, we found out it's a very controversial theory, whether or not people can actually um, uh, suffocate from p- positional asphyxia. So I had an individual in my office who's actually bigger than I am. Uh, I laid down on the ground in my office um, on a hardwood floor, and he got on my back uh, with his knee for about 10 minutes. I could breathe just, I don't, I don't want to say I could breathe just fine, but I could breathe. Yeah. You know, the, yeah, the lungs don't move in just two directions. They don't move front to back. They move 360 degrees. That's why you have a diaphragm. So, um, 
this theory that the that the prosecution played at trial is very as like i said it's very controversial and people should also understand george floyd did not die of suffocation he died of a cardiac arrhythmia all of the medical experts admitted that the issue then became what caused the cardiac arrhythmia the prosecution argued that the positional asphyxia, the the inability to breathe properly to get enough oxygen in, was what caused George Floyd to have a cardiac arrhythmia. Yeah, Chauvin's he argued that there's many things that can bring on a cardiac arrhythmia, such as high blood pressure, an enlarged heart, blockage in your coronary arteries above 50%, or in George Floyd's case, they were blocked 90% in one and 75% in the other. And stress can also cause this. And illegal drugs. Yeah, and, oh, yes, and the, inter, and the intermixing of drugs. And you have to remember, there was not, uh, George Floyd's autopsy showed that he not only had fentanyl in his system, but he had methamphetamine. I've been around so, people who are strung out on drugs, and it's not a one-on-one when they become combative. It, it's like it takes a team of people to try to hold that person down, and you're holding them down not just because you're trying to arrest them, which you're doing, but because they're going to hurt themselves. That's correct. That's one of the reasons that this hobble position is used by the police, because they don't, if the if the person is um, extremely high on drugs or suffering an overdose, um, the individual can do a lot of stuff. They can pass out in a standing position and bang their head on the sidewalk. They can start flopping around if they're not if they're on the ground and they're not restrained. The whole reason for doing the hobble technique is to protect the suspect, to make sure that they're restrained and they've settled down. Um, in fact, one of the, you know, one of the other, I don't know if I had this one, I bullet points to you, but, um, you know, the other odd thing about this case and the demonization of Derek Chauvin is, you know, the whole narrative is like he intentionally tried to kill George Floyd. I mean, nobody would intentionally try to kill anybody in front of, you know, numerous bystanders that are video recording it. In addition, Derek Chauvin had the uh, paramedics called to the scene as a result of what was happening with George Floyd. So because George Floyd was in such distress, they called the paramedics and were waiting for the paramedics to arrive, and they were restraining George Floyd until they arrived. That's not the conduct of an individual who's trying to kill somebody. No, it's not. And I know when I watched more of the tapes at the the conclusion of the trial every time they would release him he became combative again so they just would have to reapply pressure to hold him down and yeah it it was just like this circus going on george wasn't cooperating yeah and it's a you know i've talked to police officers you know about all this and it's really troubling to police officers because um you know, when suspects are resisting arrest, the officers have to physically interact with the suspect yeah. to, to get them arrested. That's what police have to do. Um, and it's unfortunate that these kind of incidents happen. I, uh, As my kids were growing up, I told them something that I was told when I was a young man, which is there's only one place you argue with a police officer, and that's in front of a judge. Yes. If you're if you're being arrested, you just do what the police officers tell you to do. Period. And you know what? In a more in a majority of the cases, in fact, I could probably say all of the cases where they've sensationalized what happened, what happened was a result of the person not doing as they were told by law enforcement when they were approached, and you know things yeah. got out of hand. Right. That's right. That's ex- that's exactly right. And when people resist arrest, those situations get dangerous. Police are not automatons; they're human beings. You know, the police are scared when somebody resists arrest because they don't know what's going to happen. Uh, they're scared for their own safety and for the safety of others. 
So those those situations are dynamic. They can escalate uh, and and get out of control, and some you know somebody can get hurt. You, know, you have would, on here the Brooklyn right. Center. What happened at the Brooklyn Center? I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, this is another problem with the with the trial in this case. So when the trial in this case started. Um, there was another uh, police incident in the uh, Minneapolis metro area in a suburb called Brooklyn Center. There was uh, there were some officers that were had pulled over a car, um, and the gentleman driving the car, his name was Dante Wright, and the officers were going to arrest Wright. I believe there was an outstanding warrant for his arrest, but I'm not. I'm not certain of that, but they were, they pulled him over. They actually got him out of the squad car or out of his car um, and were about ready to handcuff him. And then he struggled free, got back in his vehicle and two of the officers were uh, outside the driver's side window, which was open. And they were telling him to, you know, turn the car off, you know, take the keys out. And one of the officers thought she had drawn her taser pistol. She had both the taser pistol and her regular handgun. Unfortunately, she had drawn the handgun. So when Dante Wright didn't comply with this officer's orders to, uh, you know, turn the vehicle off, she fired what she thought was the taser to get him to stop. And it turned out it was, her handgun, and she ended up uh, killing him. Unfortunately, I I uh, remember now that that was horrific, and my heart goes out to her because that was clearly an accident, and she she was stunned that it even happened. Yeah, she yeah she was. I mean, based on my recollection of um, of the testimony at trial, she was she was in tears at the scene. She'd realized she'd made a mistake, and she also knew in the back of her head as a result of what happened with uh, with uh, the George Floyd incident that the world was going to come down on her. And it did. Uh, she ended up being convicted of, of manslaughter, I believe. I don't believe she was convicted of second-degree murder. And the judge sentenced her to two years. Um, the state asked for a lot more than that. Uh, and I don't, I don't believe she appealed her conviction. Um, I did not receive any inquiries from uh, from anyone, you know, to see if we would represent her on an appeal or anything. I think she's just decided she's going to serve her time and and get out and move on with her life. But it was just a tragedy what happened. Now the impact of this on Derek Chauvin's case yeah. is that there were riots again in Brooklyn Center in the middle of Derek's trial. So, you know, the, the main argument that we're making on appeal is that this trial needs to be moved, not only because of the pretrial publicity, but because of the, threat, the threats of violence uh, by the community on ultimately the jurors if they didn't convict Derek. And in order to drive, you know, you can't drive that point home any better than to have another police shooting incident that led to riots. And, and, and it was it was bad. There was buildings got burned down in Brooklyn Center. The police department up in Brooklyn Center had to have uh, uh, you know, barbed wire fence around it and National Guard troops to protect it. Um, and unfortunately, there were uh, national uh, political leaders that came, came to Brooklyn Center and made just terrific comments. Maxine Waters, who's a Democratic uh Congresswoman from uh, California came out and was advocating people get in the streets. And yeah, I remember that. You know, every, yeah, everybody knows what she meant by that. Al Sharpton, uh, yeah, they they all yeah. jumped on this bandwagon, and it was just totally misleading. Everything that really transpired, and they turned it into something that would um, make people think that this is a huge racist case, and it's not. It's no couldn't be further from the truth and people need to understand that you know there's there's right and there's wrong and the people 
that they're protecting and they're talking about and they're honoring and, and glorifying are career criminals, drug addicts. And, you know, you've got to put your priorities where they are. And if every one of them had done what they were told when approached by law enforcement, they'd be alive today, except for George. I think he'd be dead because of all the drugs. Yeah, George, it, 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 George Floyd would have had difficulties. Yeah, I mean, even if um, this incident didn't happen and, and they were able to get George Floyd into the back of that squad car and take him down to... Um, they would have, I'm sure they would have taken him to the uh, medical center right away in the squad car. I'm not sure that he would have survived uh, the fentanyl overdose that was in the system. I, I more just, than, it, yeah, it, I don't either. More than three times the lethal limit, not legal, yeah, lethal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, just like, yeah. wow. Yeah, yeah, it, it's. My, you know, again, I'm not a doctor, but my understanding from looking at the medical evidence in this case about about a fentanyl overdose is that comes on pretty quick. Yeah, uh, and it's really difficult to reverse the the impact of it, uh, which is why you're seeing a lot of people die of fentanyl overdose in the United States. Yeah, I was thinking about the Narcan. I don't think Narcan would have helped him at all. If you know the size of him and how much he had in his system, I don't think Narcan would have done anything for him. Yeah, I'm going from recollection on this, but my recollection is I I think there were um, protests in Minneapolis about police using Narcan on individuals. And I think the, the Minneapolis City Council voted to ban the police department from using Narcan on suspects. So now... Wow. Yeah, which is ridiculous. I, I I don't know what the analysis was of the individuals who are protesting this, but now when Minneapolis police have a suspect who they think is overdosing on a drug, they have to call the paramedics in to get the Narcan in. Yeah. And, of course, the issue then is, is the time delay between the call into the paramedic and when the paramedic arrives. Is, is that time go, delay going to make it too late to have the Narcan reverse the effects of the overdose and the person is going to die. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I never understood the protests about that. I, you know, if, if I had a friend of mine who was ODing on drugs, uh, and need to get Narcan in their system, I really don't care who puts it in. Exactly. Just want to get the Narcan in the system. Just, I, I don't know. And I've, I've heard people that I've talked to a lot of law enforcement and I've heard that sometimes one, two, or three shots of Narcan still don't bring the person out of it, out of it. They can be okay for a little while, and then they go right back into, when the Narcan wears off, they go right back into ODing. And I had a um, chief from Oro Valley explain that to me. And I said, I, I didn't realize it. I thought Narcan was, uh, okay, you're safe now go back and play and then she said no 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 <laughs> it's it's not like that at all yeah i mean i don't know what the medical interaction is with the narcan but uh it, that wouldn't surprise me i mean i'm sure one of the uh one of the factors involved with the efficacy of the narcan is is how much um how much of the illegal drug the person took into their system I and mean, if you've got a massive overdose my assumption would be you need massive amounts of narcan to counteract it yeah and it still might not work yeah and i i i don't think it would have helped floyd anyway you know what we need to take a quick break and we'll be back in a few okay thanks for staying with us our guest today is bill mormon he is the appeals attorney for Derek shaven and I want to talk about juror number 52. Can we, can we talk about that for a minute? I'm sorry, Sherry, are you there? I'm here. Are you there? Okay. Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Um, I, was, I was referring to juror number 52 because I remember seeing him. He wasn't just attending a protest. He was on stage with the organizers and... I just had a bad feeling about this juror, and I, I want to run a scenario by you. If I was called to jury duty, and the case happened to be somebody shot law enforcement, and I didn't disclose to them 
that I was a policeman. I work for the city of Chicago. My husband was a policeman, that I'm a paralegal. If I kept all that stuff to myself, couldn't that be considered um, a hate crime? My bias becomes a hate crime? Well, I'll, I'll tell you as a lawyer, I don't think it would constitute a hate crime. The, the problem, though, is any, any juror, uh, before they're impaneled, are asked, are given a series of written questions to answer. And then the lawyers are also allowed, uh, you know, prior to the testimony in the trial beginning, to ask questions of the jurors. And um, juror number 52, uh, it turned out after the, uh, well, before, before the trial, he filled out a form uh, asking whether he had attended protests in Minneapolis regarding the George Floyd incident, and he said no. And then he was asked if he had ever attended any protests, and he said no. And then he was asked if there's any other information we should know about you. Oh, and one other question was asked whether he had any negative feelings to the Minneapolis Police Department. He said no. And after the trial, uh, this juror went on national media. And in one interview, uh, the juror said that uh, while growing up in the Twin Cities, he had been pulled over by Minneapolis police 50 times. He alleged that they had no grounds to pull him over. He was an African-American. He was asserting that he was being pulled over because he was black. And in one incident, he said the Minneapolis police pulled their gun on him. In addition, Juror 52 attended a rally in Washington, D.C., kind of an anti-police rally uh, after the George Floyd incident. And the impetus for that rally in Washington, D.C. was the George Floyd incident. And he did not report that. Um, that is probably the second most significant issue that we have on appeal. That juror should not have been impaneled. He did not tell the truth. Uh, and he didn't tell all the truth during the jury questioning process, uh, which would have allowed uh, Derek Chauvin's attorney to strike that juror for cause, quite frankly. Um, I don't even think they would have had to waste one of their free challenges to get rid of him from the jury pool. But there's no way, knowing what we know now, that that he would have been accepted under the jury pool. Does Can he be held accountable for that lie? Isn't that illegal to be lying just so you can get on a jury that you think you're going to benefit from? Um, well, that would have to be a decision made by the... There, there's two consequences from that. One is all the juror responses are under oath. So a prosecutor would have to figure out whether or not the juror committed perjury, number one. And number two, the judge can hold the juror in contempt. And there was a case in Minnesota where a juror did this, and the judge sanctioned the juror, I I think it was around $20,000. And the uh, what the judge did was the judge tried to calculate what the costs were to the government of starting a trial and impaneling all these people and having the lawyers expend their time and the court spend its time on the case. And, and it turned out that was all wasted because the juror was not forthright in answering these these questions. Um, I would I would urge all your listeners, if you're ever called to jury duty, uh, to be forthcoming um, when you're asked questions and and to give complete responses and to even give more than complete responses to allow the lawyers and the judge to do their job. You know, if you shouldn't be on their on, if you shouldn't be on the jury, that's not your decision to make. That's a decision to be made by the judge and the attorneys. And you should let the process play itself out that way. So if he's going to, if juror number 52 is going to be held accountable, who would bring that to the court's attention? You would have to, um, well, we brought it to the court's attention. So it was brought to the court's attention in a post-trial motion filed by Derek's trial counsel, Eric Nelson. And then uh, the judge rejected uh, the, the request that Nelson made to, 
further examine the juror and determine whether or not a new trial should be granted. Now we've appealed on that issue. I can't help but wonder if juror number 52 was paid. Uh, I have no information about that at all. Yeah, I don't Uh, either, but it's it's just something that crossed my mind. (laughs) I I will be honest with you. I, um, I, that never crossed my mind. I don't think that that was the problem. You know, quite frankly, the main issue we have in appeal is this pretrial publicity and, and threats of violence on the on the courthouse and the court participants and the like. And um, part of the part of the problem with the community reaction um, to this incident is the court really needed to be sensitive to having individuals who affirmatively wanted to get on the jury to convict Derek Chauvin. Um, and juror 52 looks like he fits into that category. And Can quite frankly, the entire jury, I mean, they came back with that verdict so quick. Um, that, that was, that was stunning to me. Um, you know, Derek, Derek was charged with second degree murder. That's a serious, serious crime. And you put on top of it that he's a police officer. Um, it just, it didn't seem, it certainly didn't seem to Derek's uh, trial counsel that they seriously deliberated um, on on these issues, that they basically wanted to convict Derek and get out of there. Did they even tell the jury about the drugs in his system? How much in, in one that was consumed? Um, I think that was... Um, I'm pretty sure that that was part of the medical testimony in the case. I want your listeners to understand that my role as appellate counsel is different than than trial counsel. We have not uh, appealed from the medical evidence in the case. As I said earlier, that was an issue of disputed uh, medical expert testimony that's really not something that you're going to win a case on appeal on that issue. Right. In fact, criminal defense lawyers will tell you that if you go on appeal and your main argument is that your client's innocent, you're going to lose. The issues that usually come up on appeal are procedural issues that the trial was not fairly conducted. And in our case, again, this issue of the pretrial publicity is enormous. I actually, if, if if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to explain that to your listeners, if I could. So, the um, Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court has held under the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution, which is the amendment that guarantees you a fair trial and jury trial in a criminal case, that um, if there is overwhelming pre-trial publicity prior to the trial, the court has to try to do something to alleviate the effects of that. And the problem with the pre-trial publicity in a normal case is that you will have jurors coming in to the jury box with information in their head about the case where that information, A, might not be admissible in evidence, and B, might be wrong. Because the person that's on trial is to be, if they're to be convicted or acquitted, they're to be convicted or acquitted based on the evidence that's allowed into trial. So ideally, you want jurors coming into a trial knowing nothing about a case. Well, when you have this kind of massive pretrial publicity, um, that gets to be almost impossible. Now, the fact that there was a lot of pretrial publicity does not mean this is a layup winner for us. The way the court analyzes the pretrial publicity issue is they basically give a lot of discretion to the trial judge to try to do to address the issues and to try to question the jurors to ferret all this stuff out. However, the U.S. Supreme Court has held that there may be some cases, and the court has said that these will be extraordinary cases where the pretrial publicity is so overwhelming that the case has to be moved to another area of the state because the particular community where the trial is being held, the pretrial publicity has just been too overwhelming. Our argument in this case is that's what happened here. And 
legally, our argument is the judge in this case didn't have any discretion. He had to move this case to another to another county. Derek Chauvin was tried about a mile in a courthouse that was a mile and a half from where this incident happened. And everybody in the city knew of what had happened. They'd seen the, the news and the TV reports. The other issue, and this, this issue has not gone to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it could in this case, is in addition to the pretrial publicity, you have the threats of violence in the courthouse. And that, that is totally unacceptable. So you have riots that break out after this incident where you have half a billion dollars of damage in the Twin Cities area. Um, as a result of those riots, the court um, that Derek Chauvin was tried in was surrounded by a concrete block, barbed wire, had a squad of National Guard troops and two armored personnel carriers at the courthouse every day for one purpose, in the event the jury acquitted Derek. Five days prior to the jury even getting the case for, you know, after closing arguments were done, the National Guard was deployed throughout the metro area. So there were there were armored personnel carriers all over the Twin Cities. They were deployed for one reason, in case the jury acquitted. Wow. In addition, during the jury questioning process, many of the jurors, not only those that you know were not seated, but even some of the seated jurors expressed concerns for their own personal safety in this case. And we have the main example of that that we have in our in our brief to the appellate court it was juror 27. So if you remember, this case was uh, broadcast on court TV, which was another problem in my mind with this trial. Minnesota has never had a trial broadcast on television before until this one. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's never been done. Our courts have not allowed it. So this case gets broadcast on TV, and of course, the concern you have as a juror, right, is you don't want anybody knowing you're a juror in this case. I mean, that's, you know, you're concerned for your safety. So at the trial, the judge um, ordered the television cameras not to display the faces of the jurors. Well, that didn't solve the problem. So juror 27, who was selected to serve, after he was selected, um, you know, he went home because they had more jurors to pick and the trial wasn't going to start for the testimony in the trial wasn't going to start for another week or two. Well, when he actually goes back home, he had co-workers of his who recognized his voice and they called him. So he then contacted the judge and said, hey, people recognize my voice. They know who I am. My wife and I are scared about this. I want off this jury. And the judge pulled this juror back in for additional questioning. Um, I believe it was done on Zoom. He didn't come back into the courthouse. And even the judge expressed um, in his questioning to the juror, he wouldn't let the juror off the, uh, off the jury pool. He, the, the judge even said, we all have concerns for our safety in this case. And what I argued in our appellate, my appellate brief was at that point, the judge's discretion was removed. If he, the judge even understood the concerns people had for their safety, including his own safety, and he expressed it on the record at trial, he should have presumed that there was prejudice to Derek Chauvin and should have moved this trial somewhere else in the Twins, uh, excuse me, somewhere else in Minnesota. So it can't be moved out of state? No, okay. I don't think so. That would be, um, it's a state case. I don't think that could happen. In the federal system, um, cases can get moved to other states. And the, the uh, best example of that would be the trial of, um, I can't remember his name right now, but one of the, oh, Timothy McVeigh, one of the Oklahoma oh, yeah. City bombers. That's right. So the... Um, the judge who was assigned to that case in Oklahoma was actually uh, a judge from Colorado and Denver, Richard Mage, who I, I went to law school in Colorado. I knew of him there. And because they couldn't have any of the Oklahoma judges trying the case because <laughs> they tried to kill them. You know, I've seen that. Right, that doesn't work. 
<laughs> and so a motion was brought to move the trial as well, and Mates granted it. And not surprisingly, Mates moved the trial to Denver, Colorado. But that's because that was a federal case. But in this case, our argument is this this case should have been tried. Minnesota's a pretty big state. I mean, this trial could have been moved 300 miles away from Minneapolis. And one of the arguments I get, and I, I think you indicated this in one of your emails to me, is, well, who wouldn't have known about this case right. pre-trial publicity-wise? And that's a fair point. Uh, the problem is, is that other communities in, in Minnesota, the further you get away from the Twin Cities, would not have had that threat of violence on the courthouse or on the jurors. The jurors would not have been under pressure from the people who lived in their own community to do anything other than acquit or or find Derek Chauvin guilty based on the evidence at trial. They would not have felt that pressure. Well, I think I'm I'm biased. I think the after watching everything and seeing the evidence that has been presented so far, I think he's innocent. And I think it's a shame that all these lives, all four of them, had their lives shattered, their families' lives shattered. I feel sorry for Derek's mom. Um, have you have you been to see Derek in person? I have. Um, Derek, um, uh, yes, I have. I've seen him. He was uh, incarcerated in a prison here in, in Minnesota. So I have visited with him personally. So what is what is uh we only have like a minute left. What is a day in the life like for Derek? Right now he's you know, he's just serving time in prison. Um he's you know, trying to keep his spirits up and uh, you know, from my interactions with him he's you know, he's you know very nice man and um he you know, this image that was portrayed of him in the media of, of a uh you know, he's kind of a monster and stuff. It's just totally inconsistent with the person that I've met in, in prison. He doesn't act that way. He's pretty mild-mannered. He's pretty soft-spoken. I had several people tell me to watch this documentary, and I'm going to name it. Um, it's on the Daily Wire, and it's called The Greatest Lie Ever Sold. And the, the person who did this, created this, is Candace Owens. The greatest lie ever sold. I think everybody needs to watch this documentary. It speaks volumes. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Will you come back and, and visit with us when uh, things I, develop? I, I certainly will. Our oral argument is going to be in January. And I would just ask your listeners, if they could, to contribute to our Legal Defense Fund for Derek, which is on givesendgo.com. Okay. We'll put that on our, our website and see what we can do to help you. I, I want you to take care. If you need anything, let me know. Until next week, everybody, shop local and stay safe.